Hello and welcome back to the show, Daisy. Are you keeping well and had a good start to 2022? Yeah, I am. I'm doing really well, thank you. Um, I'm enjoying being out and about and seeing lots of local groups and things. Yeah, it's all good. How are you? I'm doing very well, Daisy. And you have been quite busy on a lot of shows, but let's talk about what we kind of discussed in our last programme, which was pledges when you elected in 2019. We kind of reviewed them for 2021. However, are there pledges or things that you'd like to kind of solidify for the start of this year so we can revisit them and chart your work in 2022? Ah. Well, I think when I was elected, I said the big priorities for me, apart from fighting Brexit, were uh, tackling the climate emergency and campaigning for better health, uh, you know, health um, services and education uh, and reform on business rates. Um, and I'm continuing my campaign on all of those. And anything for specific for the St Albans area as well? Is there anything that maybe the listeners can look forward to that you can do? Because again, factoring in the fact that you, you don't have total control of policy in the area. Well, I think there's a lot of misconception about what MPs do, right? So part of my job is doing casework. So a lot of people contact me because they need help with all sorts of different things, whether it's getting their driving license documents back or whether it's a housing issue or a welfare issue. So the pledge I can make to those people is that when you contact me, I I help every single person who contacts me in need. So that's the first thing. Uh, The second thing is that people write to me about all sorts of policy issues. Now, of course, as an MP, it's my responsibility to raise those issues of local concern with the relevant agencies. But as an MP, it's my job to use influence and advocacy to call for certain things. I'm not in charge of particular decisions. So I can say, for example, that I will continue to oppose the uh, strategic rail freight interchange, which is going to be a huge blight uh, on Park Street. I will continue to campaign for uh, as much funding as possible for the refurbishment of our local hospitals. Um, and, um, you know, I will continue uh, to oppose quarries in places like Smallford. Uh, I will continue to call for appropriate development. Uh, I've been calling on the government to review housing targets so that we get the right balance between solving the housing crisis and protecting our green belt. So all of those things that affect St Albans, I will continue to keep banging the drum. And this is the interesting thing. That's why I phrased the question as I did, because people need to understand you you can commit to a few things, but some things you don't have control of. You're not like a a dictator of St Albans or something. Um, But let's move it on then to your party's pledges for the year ahead. There's six of them winning over with liberal views, securing electoral reform, refining our message, improving our campaign support, getting our organisation right, especially in regards to the Thornhill review on the 2019 election. And most of all, I think you said, is supporting you as in the electorate. So what do these mean for terms of policies for 2022? You know, uh, these are organisational goals, right, for our Lib Dem HQ and probably for the work that they're doing. And that's very separate from the work that I'm doing as the MP for St Albans. Um, But I guess what I would say is, you know, we are always, you know, as elected representatives, we are trying to win elections because it's through winning elections that we can then change our communities and improve people's lives. Um, and I talk a lot about my liberal values. I'm an internationalist. I'm an environmentalist. I'm pro-business. I'm pro, um, uh, pro-public services. And those are the things that I continue to campaign on. So in terms of people knowing that I'm an internationalist, uh, how does that translate into policy? It means I want to see a bigger international aid budget. I want us to be playing a leading role in the world 
It means I think we need to um, be expanding, not reducing the size of our uh, military and cyber security forces, all those kind of issues. Uh, I'm an environmentalist and I think we need to be doing more to tackle the climate emergency. We were the UK was obviously hosting COP26 last year, but we still have the presidency. And um, that seems to have completely fallen off the radar uh, in the first month of this year. And of course, as I say, I'm pro-business and pro-public services. So we'll continue to campaign for reform of business rates, more support for our small businesses and high streets and, uh, and, and you know, better health and education services. So let's move it from the Liberal Democrats to, I think, the most emailed in topic we've we've had in a while, possibly ever, um, is the ongoing Partygate scandal. And just at the time of recording, we've got another twist in the, the kind of turn of events. We're now talking when Sue Gray's report will have to be scaled back because of the police investigation. Uh, but we have previously talked about the Ministerial Code, how it might not be fit for purpose. We've now seen many incidents, uh, excluding this one, where the code has been broken and nothing has happened with the offending individual. I mean, first of all, Daisy, in the future, does there need to be reform around the rules that would see politicians lose their jobs over wrongdoing? Well, I think the first thing to say is that people are incredibly angry and I have relations just today about the fact that, you know, first of all, Sue Gray was going to met, uh, wait for the, uh, no, the Met was going to wait for Sue Gray, first of all, and now Sue Gray's waiting for the Met police. You know, it's just this kind of ludicrous position that we're in. And I think people are really, really angry uh, about this situation. The government is utterly paralysed. It can't do anything on issues that, um, you know, all the other big issues facing people day to day. Um, and I do think that Johnson needs to go. Um, we've discussed this before and, and there do have to be reforms, absolutely. Absolutely, have got to be reforms. I have to say, I don't have a, a silver bullet. I'm not quite sure what the, the right reforms would be, but I do think that collectively, MPs and the public need to work out what those reforms should be. Uh, you know, the ministerial code is one example. The ministerial code has never really been called into question before because normally when a minister breaks the code, either they resign or they're sacked by the prime minister. Um, and it's just been accepted through the decades that the prime minister of the day will adhere by the ministerial code because that is what you do when you are in public office. You sign up for these principles of integrity and decency and, and following these kind of codes. Um, but we're in a situation now where the current prime minister um, completely ignores the ministerial code uh, and doesn't see any problem with people breaking it and then keeping them in office. And our democracy doesn't have any levers in place at the moment uh, to deal with that. So I'd like to say that I had all the answers um, and that lots of things should happen. Um, I'm, I do think there has to be reform and I'm open to all ideas uh, on what we can do to stop um, breaches of the ministerial code going without sanction, but also to make sure that when people say things either deliberately or inadvertently, uh, when MPs say things that are not factual or truthful, uh, that when they are proven to be wrong, that they can be challenged. Now, a lot of the time, a lot of our argument and debate is from different perspectives, and therefore there isn't always just one truth. But sometimes when somebody claims something to be fact, and it can be proven that it is not a fact, then they should not be repeating that in Parliament or in the public. And I just do not know as yet what measures we can put in place to stop that from happening. But I'm all ears if your listeners uh, and our residents have got some suggestions. Yeah, they can always message in and we can discuss it on next month's interaction. But on that issue of telling the truth, um, and obviously in Parliament, usually the procedure is when you don't tell the truth, you change it on parliamentary record. But we do 
no to an extent that when Boris Johnson in December said that he had no knowledge of parties uh, and he understood them at the time that there was none. And then the story has changed. So in terms of the ministerial code right there, do you feel that Boris Johnson has broken it even before there is any revelation from the Sue Gray report or the police's report? Uh, Yes, I do. Um, I think Boris Johnson has lied to Parliament. I think he's lied to the public. And um, when he's been caught out, he hasn't fessed up and told the truth. He's continued to pile lie upon lie upon lie. It's doing enormous damage to our democracy. And it's really insulting to people who made huge sacrifices. You know, just like every other MP, I have had scores of emails from people telling me how they know that their loved ones died alone in care homes. They know that their loved ones died alone in a hospital, that they had to sit and take part in a funeral for a mother or a father or a brother uh, on a Zoom call, you know, seeing, uh, you know, seeing somebody basically seeing their loved one who had passed away, having a funeral in an empty uh, church or chapel. I mean, these are really important rites of passage that we go through. They're kind of core to our humanity. People were deprived of these really, really important events. And now we find out that number 10 was just partying all the way through. I think it's really sickening. I think the public are rightly angry. And I just wish that Boris Johnson would just resign. And so... Continuing this discussion, Daisy, because like I said, it is a really important one. Loads of people have messaged in about this. Why has the civil servant, Sue Gray, had so much power in this process? As we've said now, the Met Police have kind of stepped in and said she cannot continue this. But why is the Prime Minister, the Conservatives, the whole government committed to her having this power, even though she has not much scope in terms of investigations, especially by the fact that no one is compelled to give evidence under oath. Well, it's exactly the right question to be asking. And certainly I've been asking that question too. Um, I think, you know, the short answer is the reason why it's happened is because Boris Johnson and the Conservative Party are trying to kick this scandal into the long grass. They're hoping that people will get, you know, anger fatigue and outrage fatigue and that eventually they'll just wriggle their way out of it and that other issues will come along uh, and overtake the public conversation. Um, what they didn't count on was more and more revelations and people getting more and more angry. Um, the fact is that the Met Police should have investigated this from the get-go. As soon as there was about, was about 50 days ago now, I think, more than 50 days ago when that video came out um, uh, with Allegra Stratton who was the press advisor to number 10 at the time sort of you know rehearsing how she would explain away a party that was more than 50 days ago as soon as there that video emerged the Met Police should have stepped in and said right we're going to investigate this as potential uh, criminal investigation but there seems appears to be a bit of a stitch up between number 10 and the Met Police because the Met Police said first of all they said we're not going to um uh, we don't investigate things retrospectively, which is a ridiculous thing for a police force to say, because that's the only way that you uh, actually investigate crimes. Then they said they'd wait for the Sue Gray report. Um, uh, and of course, Sue Gray is a civil servant, even if she does the best job possible that she can do. The fact is, she does not have the power to compel anybody to actually talk to her in the first instance. And she doesn't have the power to compel anybody to give her the truth under caution. And that's a really significant problem. So the Liberal Democrats and I, we called for the Met Police to investigate this from the beginning. They haven't done that. And here we are today in this ludicrous position where, as I said before, you know, we had the um, uh, we had Sue Gray saying she's going to wait for the Met Police. Now the Met Police are waiting for Sue Gray. And 
Parliament is paralysed and the public are furious. Just adding to this on the situation of the Met Police, uh, as you've kind of mentioned there, your party leader, Davey, said Cressida Dick mustn't let him get off the hook, a shady establishment stitch up, you know, sentiment that you've just repeated right there. Whether or not the Sue Gray report or the Met report or what whatever happens going forward, because it's not clear now, um, whatever happens with the, the wrongdoings there, do you believe that the Met Police now needs some evaluating as well? Well, first things first, um, this current situation is all about the Prime Minister and the conduct of the Prime Minister and Number 10. And we have got to get to the bottom of that because that is what is paralysing our parliament, it's paralysing our democracy, and we cannot get on and deal with other big issues. So that is the most important issue at hand, and that's really the one that I want to focus on. Uh, Notwithstanding that, I do think that further down the line, there are very serious questions to ask about what's happened between Number 10 and the Met Police. So I asked a question just last week. Um, I asked uh, the Cabinet to publish any correspondence between Number 10 and the Met Police about the timing uh, of the Number 10, uh, of the uh, Met's investigation. And the Cabinet Office has so far refused to provide me with that correspondence. Um, And that's very worrying, right? Um, And we do know that the Met Police has been found to be institutionally corrupt through the Daniel Morgan uh, investigation panel. Of course, it had problems in the past with, you know, uh, the way it treated the the Stephen Lawrence murder. Um, You know, uh, a lot of people, including myself, were very critical of the way that the Met Police made decisions uh, around the Sarah Everard vigil as well, and the decisions leading up to uh, that particular event. So I think we have seen a number of very significant failings uh, in the Met Police. I'm not sure where the blame should lie but generally speaking I'm of the view that we have um, a lot of incredibly hard-working police officers both in the Met and in other police forces around the country but there do appear to be significant problems in the leadership of that particular organisation and the buck stops with Cressida Dick. So down the line let's have a look. There was also an idea floated around with the Liberal Democrats talking about leadership that Boris Johnson should be placed on garden leave. Now, I don't know if this was more of a joke because obviously with the wording, you said he he seems to love his garden so much, put him on gardening leave. But were you serious about this proposal? Well, let's be honest, it was slightly tongue in cheek because it did relate to the fact that he'd been having parties in his garden. But there was a serious point behind it, which is that literally any other uh, official, uh, whether a civil servant or somebody in public office, if you're a civil servant, if you were under a criminal investigation, um, then you would be put on gardening leave. You wouldn't be allowed to remain in your job and try and hide your tracks or delete your emails or any of those kind of things. That is standard procedure for a lot of people um, in their day jobs. Uh, And therefore, it was a little bit tongue in cheek because of the play on words to do with the garden. Um, And we did appreciate that when we put it out and we hope that people could see the humour. But as I say, there was a very serious point behind it. Um, And I think people, many people uh, who are subject to that same sanction um, in their own jobs will recognise it as another example of double standards. The Prime Minister doesn't have to do it, but everybody else does. Let's bring it on to a fairly local issue. You spoke this month about how the ULEZ zone zone is affecting St Albans constituents. I've previously talked to Bambos Charalambos about this, explaining that to some, with no choice on how they travel, maybe they've got a disability or for other reasons, care, um, it has raised the cost of living. However, he said there should be no exceptions 
that air pollution kills people and um, people have been warned well in advance to change their vehicles and he actually said that they even had time to save up for a new electric hybrid vehicle whatever would be compliant do you believe that this view from labor is slightly hypocritical and what would the liberal democrats do differently I wouldn't call it hypocritical. I would say that um, they perhaps haven't realised what a blunt instrument this measure is. So I think we have to take radical action to tackle the climate emergency and air pollution. That is my first, you know, that that is my absolute starting point. And it's really important that we do do that. Uh, I would agree with Bambos that there was time for people to save up and to change their cars so that they were, you know, so they wouldn't have to pay this charge to get into the ultra low emission zone. Um, And the purpose of having that lead in time was precisely so people could be incentivized to buy cars that were less polluting. So I agree with all of that. And that's, and and that's, uh, you know, I guess he and I are on the same page as far as that goes. Um, I guess my concern is, um, and I think I I gave this, this, you picked up on this example. um, I have a, a particular constituent, and I'm sure there are many others, a particular constituent in London County who drives to see his mother in North London, and she lives just inside the zone, just by a few minutes. And every time he crosses into the zone, he has to pay the charge of £12.50. Now, what this means is that even if he's only in there for two or three minutes, he has to pay that charge. Um, But what it also does is it sets up a really perverse incentive, because ideally, um, you would want somebody, if they're going to drive into that ultra low emission zone, to stop and then get onto public transport. But because it's just a single fee, it incentivizes bad behaviour, because once you've paid for it, you could keep on driving, which is what's something that we don't want people to do. So what Liberal Democrats are calling for is more of a kind of smart road system where you're actually paying for the amount of time that you spend in those zones and therefore if you had that system in place my constituent would still be paying some kind of a fee but it would be a smaller fee that relates to the number of minutes that he's actually driving in that zone and it would also then deter him from even driving any further whilst in that zone which would be a good thing for the climate and a good thing to reduce air pollution so I think we're all in the same camp in terms of agreeing that we need to have radical action to tackle the climate emergency and to have clean air but I do think that there are fairer ways of doing it that actually make it fairer on people but also make it better for the environment the reason why i called it hypocritical is because obviously labor in the kind of fallout of the uh, universal credit discussions you know the the cut of 20 pounds a week to people um were saying that it was costing people especially vulnerable people those with disabilities those that did not have a choice uh in certain areas of their life um it seems like the same argument that was made for that would be used on Labour at a time, especially when the cost of living is going up, and especially for individuals who have, you know, kind of emailed in to us here at Radio Verulam, who don't have a choice. They do have disabilities. They do have to cross the um, the ULEZ zone to go to local hospitals. Do you see that maybe there should be an allowance for disabled people uh, who should not be charged at all? Yeah, it's a very good point. Um, I'm not actually uh, aware uh, as to whether or not there are any exceptions like that. And if there aren't, then I'd be very happy to pick that up. So if any of your listeners uh, and local residents um, are are in that position, if they are disabled and they're having to pay this fee, then do do contact me. I mean, the ideal situation we would be in is that you would have a lot more uh, public transport. (laughs) Uh, The rail fares would be a lot lower. And then everybody who could use public transport would be using public transport. Uh, and therefore, anybody who was still having to use a car would be having, you know, there'd be far fewer people 
relying on on cars in the first place but we're a long way off that so um in the first instance um i think what i'd like to see is a fairer system where people are paying so it's almost a kind of pay as you go kind of system and it would be possible with today's technology and london liberal democrats have been calling for this for five years so london lib dems have been calling for this sort of smart road system for five years i think it's a real shame that it hasn't been introduced i think my my bigger concern as well is that there are some people who are sort of formally climate change deniers who are now accepting that climate change is a thing but they're trying to undermine climate measures by saying that it's un- that the cost of it is falling on the shoulders of those who can least afford it and I am utterly determined to make the argument that that doesn't have to be the case there are political choices to be made and it is entirely possible to tackle the climate emergency while supporting and protecting and making life better for those who are struggling most in our society. So let's move on to one final point before we get into the community questions. But this month you raised awareness again for a local issue that, in fact, one in four women and people with a cervix in Hertfordshire aren't attending cervical cancer screenings when invited. Could you explain why this is so important that people do take up these opportunities? Yeah, it's it's so, so critical. Um, I mean, all forms of cancer are very serious. Uh, they do blight, they blight people's lives. They can end people's lives. They cause huge distress and upset to, to um, uh, not just cancer patients, but their families as well. The importance of this test is it's not testing for cancer. It's testing to prevent cancer. So the thing about cervical screening is it's looking to identify cells that might have changed uh, or particular cells that might become cancerous in future. And it's a fantastic very, uh, it's a fantastic medical way of preventing women from getting cancer later in life. And so I would just urge every single, uh, uh, every single person who's getting a letter, inviting them to a cervical screening to go along uh, and do it as soon as they possibly can. Has anybody expressed the reason that you know of that they aren't going to these? So um, nobody's expressed it to me personally, but I am aware of some of the reasons that are given. Uh, sometimes it's simply because people put the letter down and don't get around to booking it and organising it because it's seen as a bit of a faff. And then maybe they think, well, I'm fit and I'm young and I'm healthy. Maybe I don't need it. So that's one reason. Uh, the second is it can feel a bit uncomfortable for some people, you know, uh, and it's not a it, it's not an enjoyable experience uh, for some people. It's painful for other for most people. It isn't, uh, but it can be a bit uncomfortable. And therefore, it's not the kind of thing you look forward to. So you can see that some people might put it off. Um, uh, and I guess you know there are often um, you know rather uh, I'm sort of sad to say but you know, there are some women who feel a bit embarrassed uh, about uh, going to have their cervical screening and they might sort of put it off until they've sort of shaved their legs or done something like that you know and there are many uh, many medical people who have just said you know we just don't care <laughs> we just don't care you know whether you've shaved your legs or anything else just turn up for your screening because it's about saving your life and that's so important so yeah I just encourage every single woman who's received one of these letters please 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 follow up get that appointment it's really it's there to um, prevent cancer um and uh, and to save your life and also that there is an important message here as well looking at some of the comments you know when i was doing research for this you used explicitly inclusive language there because it is important as many people as possible need to do this for their health to save their lives but there was some transphobic comments in the reply to this so why is it important to use such uh, inclusive language yeah, well, I think some people attacked me for not you know, saying why aren't I using the word women? Well, I was using the word women, 
um, you know, I'm not trying to eradicate the word woman at all. I am a woman, right? <laughs> um, uh, but particularly in medical uh, settings, it is important that we use inclusive language uh, because there are, you know, some trans men that also have a cervix and therefore it's important from a medical point of view, particularly, that they are included in this messaging. Um, and, uh, you know, it was the language that was used uh, on the website that was promoting people to go for these screenings. It's language that is used Used by the NHS and in medical settings I think it's important to use uh, medically correct language and that's what I sought to do when I was promoting this initiative which is fundamentally not really about uh, gender or sex or anything else it's about saving people's lives from cancer. There you go let's move it to the community questions Andy has said why are London Northwest Western allowed to get away with providing such a terrible service on the line it could be such a useful link between two major local towns if the passing loop were to be built and the trains replaced with a light rail system or tram they could run every 15 to 20 minutes and reduce traffic considerably in the area Andy I am 100% with you um, I mean, the short reason as to why London Northwest can get away with this terrible behaviour is because the line has got such a terrible service that not many people use it, and therefore there's not many people kicking up a fuss. Um, they have experienced shortages, like every, like every other sector, uh, due to you know COVID and other reasons. But it is very disappointing that the that the service is so unreliable. Um, hopefully, Andy will know. If he doesn't, I'll tell him now um, that I have co-sponsored an application along with the MP from Watford. We're working cross-party to put in an application to the government. Uh, well, we supported an application which actually has come from Hertfordshire County Council to dual that line. Uh, that application is, is sitting with the government at the moment. We're waiting for news to, to hear whether or not they're going to grant this funding or not. Uh, I'm really, really keen. Uh, I, I'm pressing for it at every opportunity um, and we'll continue to, to keep making that case. But he's absolutely right. It could be a fantastic link uh, between St Albans and Watford and all the little villages, uh, lovely villages that we have between Howard and Park Street and all the rest. Um, but at the moment, it's just it's not a very reliable service and therefore not as many people use it as, as could be using it. Now, Nigel has brought it on to an issue that seems to be affecting the area, in his opinion. He says, what can we do about the ever-growing fly-tipping issue? It now seems that almost everywhere in our local area seems to have rubbish dumped. And recent ONS data shows that fly-tipping data in St Albans has increased from 150 cases to 910 from 2020 to 2021, Daisy. Yeah, fly tapping, fly tipping is a massive problem. Uh, not only is it an eyesore, um, but also uh, it can have you know, all sorts of waste in it that's really bad for the environment or bad for animals if they go anywhere near it. So, I mean, Nigel's right that it is a problem. Uh, there has been an increase, I think, nationally as well. Um, and uh, so you know, we are aware of it. Um, I've checked with the district council on this issue. Um, they have just employed somebody uh, to focus, I think, exclusively on this, uh, largely from the enforcement point of view. So uh, uh, whenever people do uh, fly tipping, most of the time there is something in that stuff that you can use to identify who that person is. <laughs> uh, and it might, you know, I'm not going to suggest what it might be, but there's normally something that can be found to identify that person. So what we, what the district council are going to do in St Albans is they're going to have this full-time person who's going to be, um, you know, going through this stuff, trying to find people and then enforcing it and making sure that they pay um, the relevant price, whatever that might be. Um, so hopefully we should see an improvement. 
Nick H brings the discussion on to a local school. He says, do you agree with Verulam School headteacher Julie Richardson that hairstyles are outdated and do not fit with modern ideas on dress and unfairly target students? Oh, this is the uh, hairstyle guidelines, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah, I do. Um, I think, you know, there's uh, since Black Lives Matter, well before it, but since Black Lives Matter, there has been a renewed focus about the sort of differential treatment of people from of different colours in our society. And one of those issues is to do with hair. Um, there have been some examples around the country as to where young people have been discriminated against or told they have to have their hair in a particular style or have a particular look or something like that. Um, and I think it's I think it's right that people should be allowed to sort of have their hair as they wish. Um, obviously, wherever you are, you know, generally speaking, people want to look smart. Um, but people, your hair is also an expression of who you are. And I think it's a very uh, liberal approach from the new head teacher, and certainly one uh, that I support. So the last question for this week, Daisy. Sarah has brought it on to an issue that we've talked about quite a few times about safety in the area for women. She has asked, Daisy, do you believe that self-defence classes that will run at Westminster Lodge are a good idea for women in the local area? Ah, um, well, I haven't heard about this, um, but uh, I'd say... I mean, yes, I am in favour of them. I think you know that's that's a good idea. But fundamentally, what I would also say is that whenever it comes to tackling violence against girls and women, fundamentally, it's men who need to change their behaviour and men who need to change their attitudes. And whilst I welcome anything that will make women feel more confident going about their everyday lives uh, and more confident, particularly about protecting themselves, um, I would highlight that this is just another example of an initiative where women have to take the burden of men being violent towards them. And so whilst, yes, I do welcome the initiative and I hope that women sign up to it and it gives them the confidence and strength to feel like they can go anywhere they want to any time of day or night it would be nice if they didn't have to do these courses because they knew that um, men were less likely to be violent be maybe adding to sarah's uh, point there do you think that there should be lessons for men in the area on how to intervene what they can say to friends or, or family members who may be you know undertaking unfair treatment towards women it would that be like a complementary class that could be run alongside it um I think uh, if you had a class like that, I would worry that the only people who would go to that class would be the people who already were inclined to intervene and, uh, and be an ally in that fight against violence against women and girls. What I would like to see is a national campaign that challenges men and their behaviour. It's actually a really good example from Scotland. I've forgotten the name of the organisation, but there's a it was a good little tweet that went around a few uh, months ago uh, where it was um, lots of sort of short interviews with men who were challenging each other's behaviour um, and I certainly think that something like that um, would be uh, probably that kind of messaging would reach the right kind of people. Well that is a fascinating insight once again Daisy. I hope people have enjoyed and learnt a lot from our usual monthly interview. You'll be back again next month but as always thank you so so much for your time. Pleasure.